My text for the sermon this Lord's Day is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. This Lord's Day, we continue our study concerning the matter of divorce and remarriage. Let me begin this Lord's Day with an observation, and it is this. It is quite natural for us as human beings to narrow and restrict the lawful use of a liberty granted to us by God when we see it being flagrantly abused throughout the church and society at large. Our tendency is to withdraw, to confine, to restrict that liberty when we see it being abused. But dear ones, the proper response to an abuse of a liberty granted to us by God is not to swing to the opposite extreme in either denying that liberty or restricting it beyond the limitations established by God. For example, God has given to us the liberty to use wine in moderation, as he says in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 that he has made wine to make man's heart glad. However, many all around us violate this liberty by becoming drunk and sinning against God. The response of some churches to this abuse is to prohibit the biblical liberty granted by God in the use of wine altogether. Let's apply the same principle to money. Because money is abused, should we prohibit the use of money? Or because authority is abused, should we prohibit the use of authority? Well, you see, the same dynamic seems to work in the matter of divorce and remarriage. We observe that people are jumping in and out of marriages as mindlessly as they change their socks. Granted, there is a gross abuse of divorce and remarriage that abounds all around us. The response of many to this flagrant abuse of divorce and remarriage is often, as we noted, to deny or to restrict divorce and remarriage beyond boundaries established by the Lord in His Word. Certainly, we do not want to be guilty of promiscuously tolerating divorce and remarriage for just any cause, as did the Pharisees. However, we do not find any merit in swinging to the opposite extreme wherein we deny or restrict a lawful sanction granted by the Lord to divorce and to remarry in specified circumstances. No merit in simply swinging by way of a reactionary approach to the opposite extreme. 
Thus, let us not be like those who simply react to the abusive extremes all around us. But rather, let us be like the Bereans who received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, this chapter begins this way. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. You see, the Apostle Paul is in this chapter and other places in the letter to the Corinthians answering various questions that were put to him by members of the church in Corinth. Much like when you would ask one of the elders certain questions. And the elders go to the Word of God, search the Scriptures, and try to provide answers for you from the Scripture. So various questions were put to the Apostle Paul. And he is responding to these questions concerning marriage, divorce, and remarriage. From our text this Lord's Day, the Apostle Paul responds to three implied questions. Three implied questions. Which three questions form the outline for today's sermon? What are those three questions? First of all, what should a Christian do who leaves his or her Christian spouse for unlawful reasons? You'll find the answer to that in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. The second implied question. What should a Christian do who finds himself or herself married to a non-Christian or even anti-Christian spouse? You'll find the answer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. And number three. What should a Christian do when his or her non-Christian spouse willfully and permanently abandons the marriage? You'll find the answer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. <clears throat> Let us consider then the very first question that is implied in the text. What should a Christian do who leaves his or her Christian spouse for unlawful reasons? <clears throat> Consider with me verses 10 and 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. <clears throat> As we look at this particular uh, section of the Scripture, there appear to be two different kinds of marriages Paul addresses between verses 10 and 15. I'm going to start just by identifying the second group and then we'll come back to the first group 
The second group is easily identified in verses 12 through 15. Note verse 12. Paul says, but to the rest. Here's a remaining part of of Christians that he's speaking to with regard to marriage. Another group. He has in view another group than the group that he speaks to in verses 10 and 11. Thus, if we can identify the second group, perhaps we will be able more clearly to identify the first group. The rest to which Paul refers here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, is a group of Christians whose marriages are distinct in some way. How are their marriages different? Well, we look at verses 12 and 13, we see how their marriages are different. There is an unbelieving spouse in the marriage. There is a believing spouse and there is an unbelieving spouse. That's the second group that he addresses. Well, this being the case, we can now more clearly identify the first group in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. These deal, these verses deal with marriages wherein both husband and wife are professing Christians. And giving his response to those where marriages wherein there are two Christians, Paul authoritatively commands Christians by appealing to the teaching of Christ. The Apostle says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Paul, in effect, says, I command you to do in this specific situation what the Lord Himself taught. You see, Paul is not minimizing here his own apostolic authority, but merely noting, as he should, that Christ, during His earthly ministry had already addressed the question of one spouse divorcing the other spouse within a covenantal context. The general rule is this. Let not the wife depart or be separated from her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. That is precisely the same general rule for marriage taught by Christ. For example, in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, wherein the Lord says this, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. That is the general rule. Husbands and wives are not to put away one another. They are not to abandon and leave one another. You see, dear ones, marriage is a lifelong covenant. Do you remember the words of your marriage covenant? Did they go something like this? For better or for worse? For richer or for poor, in sickness 
and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Remember the words of the Lord in Matthew 19.6. What therefore God hath lawfully joined together in marriage, let no man unlawfully put asunder. I've added the word lawfully and unlawfully if you look at the text. So as to just clarify, I believe, what the Lord is saying at that particular point. As we now move on from the general rule of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7.10, the implied question arises in verse 11. But what should a Christian do who does in fact leave his or her Christian spouse for unlawful reasons? <clears throat> Even though the general rule is stated in verse 10, let not the wife depart from her husband. And again at the end of verse 11, and let not the husband put away his wife. Paul recognizes that even though that's the rule which the Lord has given, there will yet be Christians who sin and who do leave their spouses for unbiblical reasons. What should they do in that case? That's the question that seems to be implied as we look at verse 11. Well, someone may ask the question, but why do you think this woman in 1 Corinthians 7.11 left her husband for unlawful reasons? Why do you come to the conclusion that she left for unlawful reasons? Well, for a couple reasons. First, since the Apostle Paul here appeals to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ only gave one lawful reason for a spouse to leave the marriage, namely fornication or sexual sin committed by the other spouse. He gave one reason for why a spouse within a covenantal context could put away his spouse. For fornication. The Lord gave no other lawful cause or reason for a husband or wife within a Christian marriage to put away his or her spouse. By way of review, consider again what the Lord says in Matthew 5.32. See if you find any other reason other than fornication for the putting away a wife or husband. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. And then Matthew 19, verse 9. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. The Lord gives only one cause, one lawful cause, 
put away a spouse. That is fornication. And considering that, I move on then to the second reason then why I believe this woman in 1 Corinthians 7.11 has left her husband for unlawful reasons. Christ permitted in that text a remarriage where the marriage was dissolved for the lawful cause of fornication. He does not say remain unmarried. Divorce but remain unmarried. He does grant a lawful remarriage where there is a lawful divorce. Look with me again by way of review very briefly back to Matthew 19.9 and it might be helpful to have a copy of the text open before you. Matthew 19.9 In Matthew 19.9 there are two parts of the whosoever clause within this sentence. There are two parts. Whosoever shall put away his wife. That's the first part of the whosoever clause. And the second part of the whosoever clause is this. Whosoever shall marry another. Now, in the second clause, the whosoever isn't explicitly stated, but it is certainly implied. Two whosoevers. Whosoever shall put away his wife and whosoever shall marry another. Now, if I read the sentence without the exception clause, this is the conclusion that follows. I'm omitting the exception clause. Whosoever shall put away his wife and whosoever shall marry another commits adultery. That's the general rule that we stated earlier of marriage. But in adding the exception clause to the whosoever side of the sentence, it doesn't matter whether that exception clause comes before the whosoever clause. For example, if the text were to read this way, Except it be for fornication, whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another. Or if the exception clause is put in the middle of the whosoever clause, where it stands presently in the text. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication and shall marry another. Or if it's put at the end of the whosoever clause, Whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another, except it be for fornication. It doesn't change the meaning of what is being stated, where the exception occurs on the whosoever side of that clause. Because when that, that exception occurs, it affects both the divorce and the remarriage so that one who divorces for fornication and marries another does not commit 
adultery. The conclusion is changed when you put the exception clause into it. That's the effect of the exception. It changes the conclusion. Adultery is not committed. Without the exception, adultery is committed. And with that one exception of fornication, the Lord declares that one does not then commit adultery if he divorces his wife and remarries. Remember this key principle. A lawful divorce dissolves the marriage, not partially, not 90%, but it dissolves the marriage entirely. There is no longer a marriage. And therefore, a lawful divorce allows for a lawful remarriage. That's what the Lord is saying in Matthew 19.9. And in Matthew 5.32, and I remind you, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know I covered this in the first sermon, but I think it is so important it bears repeating. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28. The Apostle asks... The question, art thou bound unto a wife? That is, bound by the bond of marriage. Art thou bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Seek not to be released by divorce from that bond to that wife. Verse 27 continues with another question. Art thou loosed from a wife? That is, art thou released or lawfully divorced from a wife? Paul says, seek not a wife. That is, in the present circumstances, as we see in verse 26, the apostle says, in the present circumstances, it is good for a man to be like myself, that he doesn't have all of the cares of the life. Don't seek to be bound if you are loosed, divorced. But verse 28 continues, But and if thou marry, that is the one who is loosed, but and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. How do we know that he is speaking of someone who has been divorced? Because in the next phrase he says, and if a virgin marry, one who has never been married, if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. So this is one who has been married. And according to the context, verse 27, flowing straight from that, has been divorced. And here, he has not sinned if he does remarry. Well, that being the teaching of our Lord from Matthew 19.9 and from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.27 and verse 28, why is this woman who leaves her husband commanded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.11 not to remarry, remain unmarried? Why is she commanded not to remarry? Obviously, because she unlawfully 
departed from her husband. There is no dissolution of the marriage. And therefore, she is not permitted to remarry. She had no lawful reason, namely fornication, to leave her husband. And thus, she is to remain unmarried. It ought to be, again, obvious to us that she is not to remarry because she is still lawfully married to her husband. And that is why she is commanded within this particular text, 1 Corinthians 7.11, she is commanded to be reconciled not to her former husband, but to her husband. She is to be reconciled to her husband. She was never lawfully divorced from him in the first place. Although she has left, he is still called her husband, that is, her lawful husband. Calvin summarizes the true import of Paul's words here in this text when he says in his commentary that this is not to be understood of those who have been put away for adultery. This is not, Calvin says, a case in which a woman has a right to a divorce for adultery. Adultery is not at all the issue here. He continues, But as to his, that is Paul's commanding the wife who is separated from her husband to remain unmarried, he does not mean by this that separation is allowable. Calvin is saying, just because the separation, the leaving her husband has occurred, and as is stated to have occurred in the text, God is not condoning that. He's not saying that it was a lawful leaving. And again, Calvin continues, He does not therefore give permission here to wives to withdraw of their own accord from their husbands or to live away from their husbands' establishment as if they were in a state of widowhood, but declares that even those who are not received by their husbands continue to be bound so that they cannot take other husbands. Thus, in answer to this implied question, what should a Christian do who does in fact, leave his or her Christian spouse for unlawful reasons, Paul reiterates the words of the Lord. He or she must not leave or put away the Christian spouse for any unlawful cause. But if that should sinfully occur, it is the duty of the wife or husband that is left not to remarry, which would be adultery but rather to seek reconciliation with the Christian spouse. Dear ones, the word here, reconciliation, is used. To seek reconciliation with her husband. This word for reconciliation is the same word that is used about our reconciliation to the Lord God. It implies the putting away of enmity so that a state of friendship, peace, and healing exists. 
It's not simply the cessation of, of hostile words while within bitter resentment and anger burns. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the same word is used. Verses 18 through 20. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. You see, the message of reconciliation, dear ones, is that Jesus Christ, by His infinite, the worth of His death, the infinite worth of His death, has reconciled unto Himself those who were alienated from Him. Those whom the Lord has given unto Him to redeem and to save, He is reconciled unto Himself. Not imputing their sins against them, but rather, in verse 21, imputing their sins to Jesus Christ, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Removing out of the way the barrier, the enmity of sin once and for all. So that now, there is not enmity between us and our God. There is friendship God is no longer angry with His people. He may chasten us in love and it can become severe, but He is not angry. His wrath no longer abides upon us. Have you captured the glorious sense that what we deserve is the eternal wrath of God? But we have been once and for all reconciled by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, when we capture the truth of that, that's not simply to remain hidden within our lives. It's to be lived out in our relationships with others so that we seek reconciliation with others to remove enmity and sin that separates us we so long for that unity, that oneness, that we're not content to simply pretend that the enmity sin that separates us is not there, that we will go out and all that, all that was within our power, we will seek to be reconciled to others. 
Well, if that's true generally, how much more true it is within our homes that we seek reconciliation continuously. The word of reconciliation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, must affect us to such a degree that we pursue it continuously in our marriage. That we do not allow anger to remain in our hearts when we fall asleep at night toward this, our beloved one. This one to whom we have committed that we will live for the rest of our life with. This one with whom we are one flesh, whom we have forsaken mother and father to be with and to cleave unto, that we will not allow sin to separate us. That's the message of reconciliation that is to be effective in the lives of all Christians. And dear ones, if we want our children to understand God's gracious gift of reconciliation, we must teach it to our children, not only in word, but in deed. We must live it before them. They must see it operative in our lives. The second question that is implied in our text is this. What should a Christian do who finds himself or herself married to a non-Christian or even an anti-Christian spouse? What should such a one do in that case? Consider with me verses 12 through 14. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife, that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. We now come to Paul's responses to the second group of marriages represented in the Corinthian church. Those mixed marriages wherein one spouse is a Christian and one spouse is a non-Christian. This section is addressed, as we noted earlier, to the rest. Paul says the Lord did not speak to this specific situation, and thus I, Paul, authoritatively so speak. That's what he means when he says, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He's not saying that the Lord has not inspired the words which he is about to give. He's simply saying, this is not a particular case that the Lord Jesus addressed as to the desertion of of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. But Paul says, I, 
address it. So these words are equally inspired as the rest of Scripture. It would appear that this second implied question arose from some concern on the part of Christians who thought that an unbelieving husband or wife in some way defiled a marriage to a believing husband or wife. That there was some kind of contamination that in some way affected the believing spouse before the Lord, polluted, corrupted the believing spouse. Well, two possible scenarios of such mixed marriages present themselves. Two ways in which it could arise that there is a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse within a marriage. The first way, at the time of marriage, both spouses were unbelievers. Then subsequent to the marriage, one of the spouses embraced the Lord Jesus Christ while the remaining spouse remained unconverted. Certainly, in this case, there is no sin on the part of the Christian in this mixed marriage. That is, the reason for the mixed marriage is not because a non-Christian was married, but because a non-Christian became a Christian. But there's also a second way in which one could conceive that there would be a mixed marriage. And that is that it may occur when the professed believer, the Christian, marries a professed unbeliever. In this situation, there is a clear violation of Scripture. For we find in 1 Corinthians 7.39, Christians are to marry, quote, only in the Lord. And so there is sin that has been committed on the part of the Christian if he or she knows that she is marrying or he is marrying one who professes to be an unbeliever. Granted, just as elders cannot know when, when candidates for membership, we cannot know with absolute certainty that one is a Christian. We cannot read the heart of a person. So, it is possible that one might be deluded. But this particular scenario is one in which a Christian marries a professed unbeliever. That's the second possible way. Well, this, as I said, is a sin committed on the part of the Christian, and it is a grievous sin. But I would be quick to add, it's not the unpardonable sin. It's a sin which can be forgiven. And I would also want to make it very clear that this sin does not invalidate the marriage, so that the marriage is null and void. This is yet a true and valid marriage, even though there was sin in the way it was entered. It is still a true marriage. It is not like a sodomite union. That is not a marriage. That is null and void. It is not like an incestuous union. That is not a true marriage. Even though a Christian who marries a non-Christian receives forgiveness, though, he or she will almost certainly face great trials 
in the marriage with regard to one's faith in many areas of life. One who willfully marries a non-Christian knows that he or she is marrying a non-Christian will encounter many, many heartaches, much anguish along the road. Questions will arise as to activities in which they will participate in. The unbeliever will want the believer to participate in various activities and the believer will say, no, I cannot. It is wrong. It is sinful. It goes against my conscience before God. Much heartache will arise as a result of this. Furthermore, there will be much heartache over the way in which the Lord's Day is sanctified. The unbeliever doesn't care about sanctifying the Lord's Day. The Christian does. There will be much pain in regard to matters related to that. And perhaps even more conspicuously in the way in which the children are raised. Much, much heartache. Think. Young people, think. Before you become emotionally involved with a young man or a young woman, what is their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they embrace the faith which you embrace? And I would even go as far as to say how wise and prudent it is for us to not be involved in marrying those with whom we have substantial disagreement in confessional matters. We simply set ourselves up, even in those cases, for great pain and heartache. You remember the woes of King Solomon. How 1, Corinthians, or 1 Kings 11, verses 3 and 4 say, that because of the godless wives that he married, they led his heart away from the Lord. I think I have the wisdom of our own confessional standards on this particular matter. In chapter 24, section 3, as to who we should seek out. Parents, as partners for our children, children who you consent to marry when you are of age. Listen. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, Papists or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 does not deal with how the mixed marriages 
in view were formed. You see, that is not the issue. He never raises the issue as to how the mixed marriages were formed. He simply raises the issue that there are mixed marriages. And so I'm only focusing on that particular point. There are mixed marriages. And he therefore addresses the nature and status of a mixed marriage and infers that such marriages are legitimate, Valid marriages for the believing spouse is not to put away the unbelieving spouse. As long as the unbelieving spouse consents to be married. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, this is what the Apostle says. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. He couldn't say that if this was an illegitimate union. But because it is a lawful union between a believer and an unbeliever, he is not to put her away. Likewise, and the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. Why? Because this is a legitimate union. Regardless of how it came about, it is now a legitimate union. And I would add, dear ones, if the unbelieving spouse should leave... God forbid that it be for some personal offense in the life of the believing spouse. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, let him or her leave because of the offense of the gospel. Let him or her leave because of the truth that you cannot bend to at all, that you cannot compromise. Let it be for that reason, not for the personal offense taken or given. Well, someone might ask the question, what about Ezra chapter 10? Where Israel is commanded to put away the idolatrous wives of the four nations. If you read the text there, the Lord does not say, consider yourselves never married, that these were null and void marriages because you shouldn't have married these women in the first place, he says, put them away. Divorce them. That seems certainly to go contrary to what Paul says. Well, I would offer to you that this was undoubtedly a positive command, a judicial law unique to Israel, given to Israel as a clean people that was to be separate from the uncleanness of the Gentiles. Just as the Jews were to maintain a distinct dietary law, different from the Gentiles, clean and unclean, just as the Jews were not to sow different types of seed within the same field. What did that illustrate? A separation between the clean and the unclean. Just as 
different types of fabric were not to be used in the same garment. And as one was not to plow with an ass and an ox. So, in this particular case, this particular judicial law, which has now expired with the expiration of the civil polity of Israel, so we are to understand it as a unique commandment to Israel. Paul now makes clear that there is no such law that pertains to Christians who are married even to idolatrous husbands or wives. They do not have the right simply because of the mixed marriage to leave their spouse. And if the unbeliever does not, according to the text, does not defile the believer in such a marriage, but to the contrary, if the believer, or, I'm sorry, the unbeliever is sanctified within that home, set apart to hear and to see the gospel of reconciliation in the life of his wife, then the children of such a union are clean and not unclean. That is, they are clean in the sense that we just spoke of. They are clean as represented as being within the visible church. Not unclean like the Gentiles who are outside of the visible church. Perhaps it was also questioned, well, can the children of such mixed marriages where there's a believer and an unbeliever, what chance do they have to grow up to be a blessing to Christ and a blessing in the church? What chance do they have? They've got an unbeliever, whether a mother or a father in the home. Consider the case of Timothy. In Acts 16.1, here is a young convert whose mother was a Jewess, but whose father was a Greek. And as we read in First and Second Timothy, we note that it was his mother and his grandmother who taught Timothy the Scriptures. Listen to the testimony of one who grew up in a home where there was a believer and an unbeliever. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. The Apostle Paul says concerning this, his dear child in the faith, Timothy, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the Father, he hath served me in the gospel. Here was a man who grew up, a child who grew up in a mixed marriage, and who was greatly and mightily used by the Lord. I encourage you, who all, whether present in this particular service or those who may hear the sermon preached at another time, 
If you are in such a marriage, do not despair. For the Lord says, your child is clean. Your child is clean. Furthermore, the Lord encourages you, dear husband and wife who is a believer, how do you know, he says in 1 Corinthians 7.16, that you may be the means by which your husband or wife come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Don't throw in the towel. Be consistent in your life. Live the word of reconciliation in all that you do and say. And commit your children, praying for them, training them, teaching them, commit them unto, unto Christ. Commend them to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, what should a Christian do who finds himself or herself married to a non-Christian or even anti-Christian spouse? Paul says, the Christian must not leave nor divorce the unbelieving spouse, but must seek to live in peace with the unbelieving spouse and seek to bring him or her to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last question. What should a Christian do when his or her non-Christian spouse willfully abandons the marriage? Consider the words, again, of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. The authoritative words of the Apostle Paul are, Let the unbelieving spouse leave. Let the unbelieving spouse depart. Do all that can be done on your part, those of you who believe, do all that you can to dissuade him or her from abandoning the marriage. But if the unbeliever is determined to leave, You can't tie them up, bind them within the house, stand in the doorway, forbid them to leave by restraining them physically. Paul actually commands, let him leave. The believer in such cases is not only not at fault, but is actually set free from the bond of marriage to the unbeliever. That is the meaning of the phrase in 1 Corinthians 7.15, is not under bondage. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 27. There we find these words, Art thou bound unto a wife? Art thou bound unto a wife? You see, the word bound there is a milder term for the marital bond. The Greek word deo. If in 1 Corinthians 7.27, 
not to be bound to a wife. Look back at 1 Corinthians 7.27. It says, Art thou bound into a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. That is, seek not to be bound to a wife. That's the implication. Though it's not actually stated the same verb that was mentioned uh, earlier in that verse, art thou bound? That's the implication. That's the inference that ought to be drawn. Seek not to be bound to a wife. Well, if not to be bound to a wife implies no marital union, when a milder term is used, then how much more there is no marital union when a much stronger term is used as in 1 Corinthians 7.15. The Greek word doulao is used there to be in bondage or slavery. He is not in bondage. He is no longer bound as a slave to that marriage when the unbeliever deserts, willfully deserts. And it is not only the verb that is used, but it is also the tense of the verb, which is the perfect tense, which means simply this. He is not under bondage or enslaved to the marriage and continues not to be under bondage or enslaved to the marriage. That's the effect of the perfect tense in Greek. The believer has not in such a case, listen closely, the believer in such a case has not put away the unbeliever, but to the contrary, the unbeliever has in effect put the believer away by way of willful desertion that cannot be remedied. That's why there is no contradiction between the words of the Lord and the words of Paul. For the Lord spoke in Matthew 19.9 when he speaks of the exception clause for the cause of fornication. The Lord himself spoke to those who were viewed as being within the context of the visible church. And said there is only one reason for a faithful spouse to put away an unfaithful spouse, namely fornication. Whereas Paul addresses the issue of the believing spouse who is within the context of the visible church being willfully and permanently deserted by the unbelieving spouse who is viewed outside the context of the visible church. There is no contradiction, therefore, between the words of the Lord and the words of Paul. Paul is dealing with a different situation that the Lord himself did not address. Well, what about the professing believer? Someone might ask, who willfully and permanently deserts another professing believer? Well, I'd simply offer to you, such a case should be tried by the church courts so that the professing believer is censured and excommunicated if it is willful desertion and he will not or she will not turn from that desertion. And when he or she is then excommunicated, she is accounted as a heathen and as a publican outside of the visible church. And the professing believer then is under no bondage 
to the marriage having been deserted by an unbelieving spouse. Another question arises. Since nothing is explicitly said concerning the liberty to remarry in 1 Corinthians 7.15, ought we to assume then that there is no liberty to remarry? Is there no liberty granted? We ought not to assume that. For to be lawfully loosed from the marital bond is a lawful dissolution of the marriage. To be under no bondage or under no obligation to the marriage is to be dissolved from that particular marriage. And when therefore a marriage, as we've already said, is lawfully dissolved, the liberty to remarry also accompanies it. And that is what we have seen. Again, I won't read the passages, but 1 Corinthians 7, verses 27 and 28, where there is a lawful divorce, permission is granted to remarry. And in Matthew 19, 9, and in Matthew 5, 32. This is exactly what our confessional standards teach. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 24, section 6. Listen to what is stated there. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments, unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, Yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. And in the previous paragraph, it says, where there is a lawful divorce, there is also granted a lawful remarriage. This was the practice of Geneva, of Scotland, and other Reformed churches as well. These are all good reasons, as I come to the end of the sermon, these are all good reasons, dear ones, for maintaining courtship within our families. For there is time to get to know the faith of the one whom your child will be courted by or will be courting. A time to get to know their faith without interfering with physical affection, hurrying the process along at lightning speed, the benefits, therefore, of courtship. The last thing I would say to you today, dear ones, never, ever underestimate the power of the gospel to save. 
If you are in such a relationship, never underestimate the power of the gospel to redeem, to bring the message of reconciliation to your spouse. Simply follow those particular duties that God has given to you. Seek His grace, husbands, believing husbands, to love your your wife, even your unbelieving wife, as Christ loved the church. You see, the Lord didn't begin loving us when we became all of a sudden godly. He loved us while we were ungodly. He wooed us unto Himself. And so the Lord tells us, If you're in such a situation, it's not hopeless. Do not desert the marriage. Do not abandon your spouse. Pray for her, husbands. Live the life that Christ has given to you in all of its glory and power. For the gospel is the power of salvation. Do you believe that? And proclaim the word of reconciliation, husbands, through your life and your deeds and your words. And wives, believing wives, who may be living with unbelieving husbands, take to heart what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, that you, by God's grace, as you live a chaste, meek, humble, quiet life before your husband, obeying the Lord, that you can win your husband even without a word. Do you believe God's promises? Are you clinging to the arm of flesh? Are you trusting simply in the promise of God? He is able. And dear ones, that goes in general. If there are things in the lives, even amongst Christians, husbands and wives that we desire to be changed in our spouses' lives, they will most likely not be changed by banging our spouses over the head or nagging them to death, but by faithful living the gospel of reconciliation being faithful to the duties which God has blessed us with and given to us. And as I said, to mothers who have unbelieving spouses concerning the children, so I would even say to mothers or fathers who are divorced, who are single, your situation is not hopeless. Just because you do not have a believing wife in the marriage, because you're all alone, because you do not have a believing husband to support you in your marriage, does not mean that your children are destined to turn out for the worse. Where is your hope? Is your hope in the Lord? See, if it depends upon us, even the smallest little speck, if it, uh, the salvation of our children depends upon us, it is by works. But God says it is by His grace. 
take hold of his promises and never let go. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you this day and praise you for the infinite worth and the power of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise thee, our God, for the message of reconciliation. We praise thee, our Father, that it is an effectual message. And that as we teach it, even within our homes, and live it, Thou, by Thy grace, will apply it in the hearts and lives, even of family members. O Lord, we pray that Thou would encourage the hearts of Thy people this day to turn from their own sense that it depends solely upon them the salvation of their children, and look rather to Jesus Christ, the mighty God, one who has blessed us with these children. They are His gift to us. And let us, Father, trust Thee that Thou wilt guide them and keep them and protect them. That Thou in Thy time, O Lord, and in thy mercy will apply the promise that has already been given to them. We ask our Father that thou would give to spouses hope this day. That their marriages are not destined for destruction. Even if they are married to unbelievers, that Father, that unbeliever is sanctified even by the presence of of the believer. We ask our Father that Thou would bless the marriages within our church. We ask, Father, that Thou would cause them to shine forth with glorious light as others observe, and especially as our children observe. That our children would not say, I never want to be married because the marriage that I saw in my parents, but rather, Father, that our children might actually love and desire that kind of companionship. Thou would lead them and guide them to godly spouses. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.
Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, 
or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.